Well, let us open our Bibles to the 11th chapter of the book of Romans as we continue our series there. Even though it may not come as often on Sunday evenings as it once did, we continue the series. And we are in chapter 11, the first six verses, a remnant according to the election of grace. Perhaps it would be important that I remind you that in the 10th chapter, we have these uh, wonderful promises about the preaching of the gospel and those who believe the preaching of the gospel. But then in verse 18 of chapter 10, uh, we read, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me, of course, meaning the Gentiles, us. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, before reading our text this evening, we would pour contempt on all our pride. We would acknowledge that you alone are sovereign, that you are the God who ordains, you are the God who overrules, You are the God who plans and purposes, and indeed that plan is inscrutable to us. But in the midst of it all, we have your promises to your people, and those promises in Christ are yea and amen. May we this evening understand this text, but may we also apply it to ourselves so that no matter what our experiences may at present be, or have been or will be in the future, that we as the covenant people of God will leave applying the promises, precious, precious promises to our own hearts and to our own lives. That we may understand that the same sovereign God who is revealed in this text is the sovereign God who loves us and who is involved even in the difficulties of our lives to show forth grace and to conform us to the image of your Son. Hear our prayer. And we ask for the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Help us as we confess even every Lord's Day, I believe in the Holy Spirit, to believe in the Holy Spirit as we now turn to your word. These things we ask humbly and reverently in submission to your word in the name of Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Amen. Why don't you take your copy of God's Word and stand as we did in the morning service, chapter 11 of Romans, the first six verses. This is the Word of God. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? 
I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Election that is so clearly taught in the word of God is a glorious biblical theme. We have seen it time and again in the book of Romans and, of course, in other Pauline epistles. Just to remind you, in chapter 8 of Romans, in those very familiar verses, 28 and following, the apostle says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, and remember, foreknow means to put his love upon beforehand, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then turning to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, over and over again, there's an emphasis upon the electing grace of God. Uh, For example, he says, beginning with verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father, forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. So over and over again, we see these wonderful themes in Paul's epistles. John Owen the Puritan made the statement, no election, no gospel, no gospel, no church. And he is absolutely right about that. Now, as Paul has been concerned with the future of his fellow countrymen, he returns as he did in chapter 9, to this great theme of electing grace. Paul knows that there is no hope for Israel and there is no hope for any sinner apart from electing grace. How can spiritually dead sinners come to life without divine intervention? And divine intervention implies a sovereign choice to intervene. But it is more than that. The Lord's design all along was to honor his son in this way. So that, for example, if you were to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, we find there indicated that God's plan all along was to honor his son by the son's redemption of sinners. 
In that sense, redemption is not repair work, but God's planned work from all eternity. Now notice how chapter 9, 1 and 2, chapter 10, 1 and 11, 1 hang together. In the first two verses of chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart where I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And so he is concerned with, with God's purpose and plan for the Jew. In chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, speaking again of the racial Jew, is that they may be saved. And when we come to verse 1 of chapter 11, we see this is still the theme upon his mind. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So his concern in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is God's purpose of salvation for the racial Jew. So we begin as we look at this text, chapter 11, the first six verses with this truth. God has not cast his people away. Now this is the link between the verses that we read in chapter 10, 18 through 21 and 11, 1. For in those passages from the end of chapter 10, one might conclude that he thinks that Israel has been cast away because of their sin and that there is no longer any hope for the Jew. They had heard, but they had not believed. God said that he would turn to the Gentiles. All of that is true, but it would be wrong to conclude that God has no people among the Jewish nation and no purpose still for salvation. It is true that Jew and Gentile are in the new covenant on a par, that there is in terms of spiritual privileges, neither Jew nor Greek, but God still plans to save Jews and to bring them into his church. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. So notice how he puts it there in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, speaking of the elect among the Jewish people. Foreknew, remember, is a virtual synonym for election. It does not mean that God simply knew who would believe. No one believes but God's elect who are enabled to by the effectual operations of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 29, he put his love upon us beforehand. He foreknew us. He still has an elect people among the countrymen of Paul the apostle. And Paul says, I'm an example of this myself. In verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, I am a living example of the proof and proof that God still has a purpose and plan for the Jew. Now, throughout Israel's history, it often seems as if God might be done with Israel. But God keeps his promises and God keeps his covenant. Throughout Israel's history, this was always so. Just look especially, Paul will tell us in this passage, look especially at the time of Elijah the prophet. 
But before moving on, I want us to see, all of us who name Christ's name, that God always keeps his word, that God always keeps his promises, that his loving purpose for his own, whether Jew or Gentile, will be fulfilled in his sovereignty, that there were dark times in Israel's history, times when surely, listen, times when no one could see that God was at work when it was not apparent that God was at work, indeed, where everything seemed to contradict the reality and truth that God was sovereignly working in history. But we walk by faith and not by sight. And whether we see God working, whether we see Him keeping His promise, whether we see that he has a good and loving purpose for us. And even when circumstances appear to contradict his love, what we learn from this text first and foremost that we must take with us is that God loves his own and always keeps his word and always keeps his promises. So we see secondly as we move along in the text, the remnant according to election. Look at verses 2 through 4 once again. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So chapter 11 does not teach a glorious future for Israel in a national sense. That's a discussion we can have, but there's nothing in this chapter like that. It does not teach that Israel in 1948 was partial fulfillment of this passage. That's a discussion we can have, but there's nothing in this passage about that. Now God in his providence had his purpose in directing that, we know. But it does not teach that there will be a great ingathering of the Jews in the latter days, which I think is a misinterpretation of what comes later in chapter 11. It does not teach that during a millennial period in the future, Israel will be predominant. Nor does it teach that all Jews in the future will be saved. But the passage does teach that the Lord will save a remnant of those who are racially Jews. And the point is, when God cast away national Israel, did that mean that none would be saved? Did that mean that as history went on, that he had no purpose to include the racial Jew? And the answer that God gives in this passage is, God has indeed planned to save Jews by the cross of Jesus Christ and to bring them into his church. God forbid, says Paul the apostle, God has indeed foreknown some that he intends to save. As he says in chapter 9, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. God has indeed foreknown some that he intends to save. He has planned in his electing decree to save sinners from every, every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation, and this includes the Jew. There is an elect remnant of the Jews whom God will save. And this is according to the election of grace. As verse 5 says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace.
Which leads us to the third thing we see in the text. Election is of grace. There are times in which we almost despair of people coming to know the Lord and being saved in various places, in various parts of the world, at various times in history. This was true of Israel. And so the Apostle Paul points back to 1 Kings 19, the first 18 or so verses. Herman Hoeksema actually points out that this was a very pathetic moment when a prophet of Israel was led to intercede against Israel. Imagine if our congregation, God forbid, but imagine if our congregation was in such a moral condition that the minister must intercede against members of the congregation that were tearing down God's altars and destroying his prophets. Oh God, they are all wicked, basically, Elijah prayed. And maybe some ministers must do that in some denominations and some churches, or at least plead for grace against the backdrop of real apostasy. Well, national apostasy was the backdrop of the ministry of Elijah the prophet. It was a dark time. Things looked bleak. Was God going to redeem? Was God going to save? So you remember the history, don't you? God destroyed the prophets on Mount Carmel through the ministry of Elijah the prophet. Jezebel then threatened Elijah. All of these prophets had been destroyed, but because of the ire of this one woman, fear was struck in the heart of Elijah, and he fled to Mount Horeb. What dost thou hear? They have killed your prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life, says the authorized translation. And this is how things, listen, this is how things looked to Elijah. All was dark. Things looked hopeless. The prophet was discouraged. He was truly depressed. He did not look at the promises of God. He did not focus upon Genesis 3.15 and the promise that God would send his son into the world to redeem sinners. And in denominations when the elect and in churches when the elect true believing people of God were leading in various times in history, things look very, very well indeed. But how often it is the case that it happens that professors who do not possess Christ come in charge. And the reprobate can take charge of a denomination or a church. And this happened to Israel in Jesus' day. A church sent Jesus to the cross. An apostate Jewish church that failed to receive God's word sent Jesus to the cross. Now, in the little bookstore back here, second time I've mentioned that today, I'm not trying to advertise, but it's back there for somebody that might be interested. I guess that is advertising. There's a little book back there called A Sad Departure, and it was written by a very peaceful, irenic Church of Scotland minister who, along with a number of other Church of Scotland ministers, has of late had to leave the Church of Scotland. Now, this is the church, historically, the Church of the Reformation, the Church of John Knox, but they have become increasingly so apostate 
that they have begun to ordain to gospel ministry, however that is understood by them now, uh, homosexuals. And so a number of pastors and churches have left. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, you might remember, pastored in the Tron there in Glasgow. If you get off the train in Glasgow, I've done it, you get off the train, you come up and you look and there's the Tron, dominates. It was the church where Thomas Chalmers had pastored later, as we mentioned, Sinclair Ferguson. Well, they lost their property. They lost their property. Why? Because the reprobate are in the ascendancy in the Church of Scotland. They've taken over. This was true in Elijah's day, and things looked very bleak indeed. But are things ever as dark as they seem? Is not the Lord in sovereign control? Read verses 3 and 4 once again. Lord, now you've got to read this with the pathos with which it is intended. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I have reserved for myself my elect remnant. It owes nothing to us. It owes nothing to you. I am the one who did this in my sovereign grace. And people of God, remember, the Lord has a people chosen by his electing grace, a remnant according to the election of grace, and he will save those people. He will save those people. He will save those people. Jew and Gentile alike. John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. I have reserved to myself 7,000 unknown to Elijah the prophet. God had done this. Those are the reasons the remnant will be saved, infallibly saved, cannot be lost because of God's unconditional sovereign choice and free sovereign favor. And if you are saved from your sins, it is because of that same free sovereign favor that has been at work throughout Israel's history and continues to work to save the remnant of Israel that the Lord has chosen. I mentioned Herman Hoeksema earlier. He has a lovely illustration of this from the artist. Here's what he says. It is possible that the artist, is it possible that the artist who foreknew his picture should refuse to put a part in it when painting it? No, for if he did, the picture would be spoiled. Is it possible that God should cast away a part of his people whom he foreknew, 
No, because the church is a whole. The church is not a mob. It is a whole. When the church is finished, it must reveal the glory of the Son. If a part were missing, the glory of God would be marred. Therefore, he preserves them. He regenerates them, calls them, justifies them, and glorifies them. No matter how the church may appear to us, God always preserves his 7,000. God always saves his people. Praise to his glorious name. So the doctrine of election that is revealed here and throughout Scripture, and especially in Romans 11 and in chapter 9 and in chapter 8, the doctrine of election revealed in the Bible is given to us for a number of reasons. It is given to show us that salvation is all of grace. If it depended on you and me, we would be lost forever. If ever it should come to pass that sheep of Christ might fall away, my fickle, feeble soul, alas, would fall a thousand times a day. It's all of grace. So election is given to show that salvation is all of grace. It is given also to humble us so we recognize we make no contribution. It is given to assure us because if God has saved you from your sin, behind it is God's eternal decree. It's a necessary plank for the assurance of your salvation. It is given to promote evangelism because the only hope that we have that sinners will turn and be saved is that God has chosen a multitude which no man can can number. But it it also is given to encourage us in our Christian walk. In the knowledge, Elijah needed to learn this, in the knowledge that God is with us in the battle, that he has a plan through the apparent chaos. And you know that old illustration, but it's so good. It's so good. Of the Persian rug, don't you? The Persian rug, you look at it from top, you see something that's quite beautiful, but when it's made, you see it underneath, and it's a tangled maze. You can't make it out. But as you're looking underneath and you see this tangled mass, then you look on top, you see this beautiful pattern that is being woven. That's the providence of God, the sovereignty of God in your life and in mine, in history. We see the tangled mass. God sees the beautiful pattern. We walk by faith, not by sight. We're not up here. We can't see the pattern, but God says it's there and we are to believe it. Do you get that? All right? I don't care what the circumstance is. You could be in the worst of circumstances. It could be a Christian held captive by ISIS. Hard, hard things. And God is working his purpose out. And the day will come when all of these hardships that have been used of the Lord for his eternal purpose and to glorify his son and to make us Christ-like, going through things we can't get and we don't understand, the day will come in which it will all make sense. And this will be a blip on the screen. For we have an eternity to worship our Lord. One more thing. Fourthly, it's grace, not works. Now, Paul wants to emphasize that, verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. 
So you see, it's wrong to view election as based on something within ourselves or upon foreseen faith or merit. To say election is to say grace. There is no merit of works at all. There is no contribution of our own, none whatsoever. If it were by works, grace would not be grace. And so Paul insists on what has been said all along and explicitly in chapters 8 and 9 He has stressed all through the book of Romans human depravity, human inability, that faith is God's gift. Salvation is by sovereign grace. Just keep your finger here a moment. Turn to one other passage of the many to which we could turn. Turn to 2 Timothy 1, 9. I'll pick it up at verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes in this last will and testament of his to his protege, Timothy. And to encourage him, he says in verses 8 and 9, 2 Timothy 1, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So as far as anything in us is concerned, God's choice is without cause. As far as anything in us is concerned, I said, God's choice is without cause. He did not choose us for anything within us. As a matter of fact, what would our works merit? Tell me, our works would merit damnation. Is not our Lord wondrously gracious to choose any sinner, any sinner at all, much less a multitude which no man can number, and send his son to die for us? So what response to this? I think of all of the responses that we could give to this passage tonight as we take it to our Christian walk on Monday is the stress upon the encouragement that we should receive from this passage. That God has a plan, and the plan is never endangered. And he will glorify his son, and he will save his own. And no matter how bad things are, God has a people. And God chose them, and the sacred veins of Jesus were opened that he might shed his blood and purchase us. And the Holy Spirit calls us effectually. It is all of grace, none of works, infinite, boundless, sovereign, free grace. And the only reason Christ gave up his life for us is that he loved his people. Did he love you in eternity? Do you trust him now with all of your heart? Do you believe that Christ alone is your Savior? Then he's loved you from eternity. He loved you. He loves you. He will love you. And what of Israel? Those chosen among them will be saved. Indeed, Gentiles, the same. If left to ourselves, we would be lost forever. Hear the hymn writer. O thou great eternal Jesus, high and mighty Prince of Peace, 
How thy wonders shine resplendent in the wonders of thy grace. Thy rich gospel scorns conditions, breathes salvation free as air, only breathes triumphant mercy, baffling guilt and all despair. Oh, the grandeur of the gospel, how it sounds the cleansing blood, shows the bowels of a savior, shows the tender heart of God, only treats of love eternal, swells the all-abounding grace, nothing knows but life and pardon, full redemption, endless peace. No matter what you experience, if your trust is in Jesus Christ, behind it is God's eternal plan. And God demonstrate his, demonstrated his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for his people. He purchased his people with an irresistible, effectual purchase. He will save his people. And because Jesus loved you and demonstrated God's love on the cross, no matter what you experience, there's one thing you may never doubt. You may never doubt his love. He has proven it once for all in the cross. And God's people said, amen.